Well, it's a pleasure to be here at the first Amen conference. Let's just bow our heads just for a word of prayer. Dear Lord, be with the butterflies I have, God. Lord, speak through me, God, as I share my experience. And may somebody benefit from my experience. Amen. I thought I'd tell you my experience and how I really became a Christian. And how finally I said, here am I, send me. Faster you go, the wind starts going through your face. This is exhilarating. This roller coaster ride is the best. But you're coming up to this huge spiral loop. And as you go up, the screams, they're tremendous. And you get up there in zero G's, and now you dive to the ground faster and faster. It seems like almost faster than sound. And then you finally come to the barrel rolls, and you do one roll, and another roll, and another roll. This is really cool. But it keeps going, and going, and going, and doesn't seem to stop. Eventually, you start getting a headache. Eventually, you start feeling the pit of your stomach start getting nauseated. And you can't wait for it to stop. Finally, after an eternity, clickety-clank, 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 clank. It stops. Only to start up again in reverse. How many of us today are riding the roller coaster of life, especially as professionals? Things seem to get more hectic as time goes on. More disasters. New Orleans. 9-11. We seem to be caught in the rut of the U.S. dream of pleasure and money. And I was definitely caught in that dream. Graduated from Loma Linda in 89. Didn't know what I wanted to do. Applied to internal medicine, OBGYN, and family practice. Got into OBGYN. Spent a year in OBGYN. Still didn't know what I wanted to do. Switched to family practice. Graduated from family practice, but started doing all my electives in emergency medicine. So when I got out of residency, I thought, you know, what do I want to do? So selfish ideas, I went and skied freestyle mobile competition with a Telluride bump team. Started doing emergency medicine on the side, full-time in Cortez, and later became the director for the Cortez ER in uh, southwestern Colorado. But my life really didn't change to about seven years ago. I was asked to go on a mission trip with Union College. And we went down to South America, to Brazil, and we were on the Amazon. And I remember one night after treating patients, one of the patients came and invited us to their home to eat, my wife and I. And I don't know how many of you have been down to Brazil or been any of those little dugout canoes. They're about that far off the water. So I remember the seven-year-old girl coming to peek, pick up my uh, wife and I. And I remember it was at night, we had our headlights on, and we were gliding through the water, and she must have taken us this scary route, because we went by these huge nine-foot alligators. But as we slowly went, we came to this path, and she parked the boat. We went up the dark path to this tiny little house. We went up the steps, and they had this tiny little entrance room where my wife and I waited with our knees hitting each other. And finally, the door opened to the house, and we were invited into the house. It was an eight-by-eight eight room with a thatch roof and wooden floor and sides. And they had a little candle on the table and a little candle in the corner. 
And they sat there and they gave us this feast. And they didn't eat at all. Being extremely poor, we kept trying to get them to eat, but they would not. But I looked into their eyes and there was something in the eyes of these people that I did not have. They were Christians and they were happy. Here I am, a physician making over 200000 a year. I have a boat. I have a plane. I have motorcycles. I have ATVs. I have 131 acres that overlooks a beautiful lake where we have our ski course on. And I was not as happy as these people looking at me that had a dugout canoe and an eight-foot square building. Something was wrong with this picture. I came back to the U.S., and I said, God, what is wrong? I'm an elder in your church. I study the Sabbath school lesson. I'm there every Sabbath. Why am I not as happy as those people down there in this little tiny room? So I went to the Desire of Ages. And when I got into the Desire of Ages, everyone knows a quote in there that says, we should contemplate the life of Jesus Christ for the minimum of an hour a day, especially the closing scenes. So I started spending an hour a day with Jesus, and it changed my life. Sometimes I get a little dry here, so excuse me, this isn't part of the illustration, but I'll drink some water here. So I went through the Conflict of the Ages series. Tremendous. Even going through all our school systems, I've never read from cover to cover the five books. And I started feeling uncomfortable working on Sabbath. As an ER physician, you have to work on Sabbath. And as the director of the ER, I gave most other people their, their weekends off, and I would work a lot of weekends. So I came up with this crazy idea, and I came home one day and looked at my wife and said, Susan, let's take the Sabbath earnings and let's put them to outreach. And her jaw just fell open. Because you're already giving 10% tithe before taxes. And now my Sabbath earnings were 20% of our income. So this is 30% of our income. And I don't know if you're like me, but I'm not good budging my money. So we, ra we, <laughs> we rack up the credit cards. <laughs> you know, we own the house. We own this and that. And there was no way we could do this and pay our bills. So I said, let's put God to the test. And let me tell you, the more in the last seven years I put God to the test... It builds my faith, and God loves to be put to the test. So I said, let's go ahead and try it for a month. And then if that works, we'll try it for another two months. Let's take the Sabbath earnings and put them to outreach. And so we did. And somehow we paid our bills that month. We paid our bills the next month, the next month, the next month. So we started taking all the Sabbath funds and putting them to outreach. One of the first outreaches we did was we took the Desire of Ages. And we go up to our neighbors and we'd say, would you like to read The Desire of Ages? It's made a real impression in my life. When's the last time you read The Desire of Ages? It's been a while. Well, i tell you what I'm going to do. Is I have a $100 bill here. And I want you to take it and I'll use it as a bookmark. So I'm going to give this to you. It's yours. So that's what we started doing. We started taking The Desire of Ages. We give, we give thousands of them out with a $100 bill. And everyone would try to give them back to us. Especially the $100. No, we don't want the money. We'll take the book. And I said, no way. That, that, the $100 bill goes with the book. Otherwise, you don't take the book. And it was amazing. No, we didn't fill the church pews. But it was amazing the results we saw. Then we did it with the church with the great controversy. And I don't believe buying people to heaven. You can't buy. But we can try different ways to try to influence them so the Holy Spirit can start working in their lives. And let the Holy Spirit run from there.
So we started doing other things. Actually, we're doing one with Union College. We just ordered 2,000 Escape to God books. Anybody read, read this book by Jim Hornberger? If you haven't, it's a creative new way to look at how the Holy Spirit can work in your life moment by moment, not day by day or hour by hour, but moment by moment. So we've ordered 2,000 of these books, and we're paying the students to read them at $25 a book. Some think I'm buying people to heaven, but again, I don't believe in that. But hopefully through this book, that they'll start having a closer walk with Jesus Christ. So finally we decided, well, let's go ahead and hire an associate pastor. So we hired Mike Lowe, and he came in as a Bible worker to our church. And Mike has been teaching survival for about nine years with the Air Force. And I'm on a SWAT team, and um, I'm the ski team in the ski patrol. And I do technical rescue and stuff. So we kept thinking, how can we involve our youth? We know we're going to have more and more disasters, but how can we involve our youth to go out there and to help people in disasters and tell them about Jesus? So we started doing a summer program where we take students and we teach them wilderness medicine, survival, and rescue skills. Little Highlander rescue, swift water rescue. We play a lot in the rivers. We're on cliffs. And it was a lot of fun. We started working with these youth. Well, Doug Tallman from Camping Academy got hold of me and said, Mike, Southern University has asked for me to come down and do a course for them. How about if you come down and do a course? And said, Doug, we can do better than that. We can come up with a four-year degree in international rescue and relief. And so we came up with this four-year degree, and we pitched it to Loma Linda. And I was finally getting at the stage in my life where I said, God, here am I. Send me. Take my finances. Take my job. Take my time. 100% donated to you, not just 10% of my type, but 90 to 100% of all my income. And when you start doing that, it's amazing how Satan attacks. And I've had some brushes with death. I've been shot at on the SWAT team. I've been at Mount McKinley where 17 people died around me because it was a minus 150 degrees. But in eight months, I had four encounters with death. And I'll just tell you one of the stories. We were up hiking in a sheep mountain. Sheep Mountain is about 13,000 feet. And we were coming down. We knew the snow was a little unstable. And as we were coming down, we had to drop into this avalanche chute. And we only had to go for about 300 feet in the avalanche chute. And so my friend Mike was with me. And I said, Mike, let's drop down this avalanche chute with our snowshoes, and then we'll climb back out. So we're down in this avalanche chute, and all of a sudden I heard Mike yell, and I heard this wind. And I knew exactly what it was. Avalanche! I quickly looked to my left and started running to my left, and I saw the slide start going to my left. And something said, no, Michael, run right. And it said it again, run right. And so without thinking, I obeyed the voice, and I ran right. I ran under this 10-foot boulder, and as, as I did, the avalanche swept by, and it was about six inches of snow. And I thought that was it. And all of a sudden, ba-boom! Ten feet of snow went over the top of me, and I was down behind this rock. And there's just this huge roar. And this avalanche is going over. And finally it gets less and less and less. And then over the roar, I hear this scream. Ah! And there goes Mike over the top of me. <laughs> and he's dressed in red and I can see him going. And it wasn't kind of the avalanche that throws this huge powder blast. It was a really thick avalanche. And so I watch Mike going down. He's trying to swim to stay on top of it. And then he disappears. He goes under. Then he comes up again. Then he goes under. Then he comes up again. And finally, he stops before the series of five cliffs that went over. 
And I could see a hand waving. The avalanche stopped. I quickly looked up the mountain. No other avalanche was coming. I'm yelling, Mike, hang on, I'm coming. And I'm running 300 yards as fast as I can go down to Mike. And all of a sudden, his arm stops as he goes unconscious. And I get down to Mike, and he's just regained consciousness. He's going, help me, help me. For it was this hard snow, and it impacted his chest so hard that he couldn't breathe. And I carry an avalanche shovel in the back. And so I grab, I didn't grab the shovel. I started digging like a dog. I should have grabbed the shovel. He was ver- pinned vertical in a vertical position. And so I finally got him unburied. And we knelt him in the snow. And thank God for saving our lives. Three other incidents happened. And I won't go into all the details of those. But one was a motorcycle accident with a church. We had a church service. I was knocked unconscious for 20 minutes up in the mountains. The air for life was coming to get me. And I remember having paresthesias, numbness in my lower legs, and paralysis. I could not move my lower legs. I knew I broke my neck. And the whole church got together and prayed for me up there while that helicopter was coming in. And I don't remember the helicopter ride. I paid $5,000 and don't remember a helicopter ride. <laughs> but anyways, they flew me down to the hospital, and they found no neurologic deficits. I had minor fractures in the neck, and I had busted up shoulder, but no neurologic deficits. Then another time, uh, the two other incidents, one was I was electrocuted at high voltage, and it didn't phase me. Then another one, I fell off a cliff and was pushed up onto that cliff up in the mountains, all within eight months. When you start saying, here I am, send me, Satan will attack, whether it's on your life, whether it's financial or some problem. So here we are, getting ready to go to Union College now to start this program. And the deal I made with Union College last year was that since I won't be teaching, I'm just teaching upper courses, that you don't have to pay me. I worked for the first year for free because I knew we'd sell our home and we had a lot of equity in our home, even though we dissolved our 401k for Wilderness Way Adventures, our other program. I knew by selling our home, we'd have like 500000 to live on. Um, and I knew we'd just do fine. And I knew I was going to work in the emergency room and uh, Lincoln. So I applied to the emergency room and I didn't realize it took six months for credentials to go through. So here we are, trying to figure out what we're going to do selling our home. So we contracted with a realtor and we're just signing the papers that morning. My wife, in her prayer walk, said, Michael, I feel impressed that we shouldn't have a realtor. I said, Susan, how are we going to sell a home if we don't have a realtor? And she said, well, I feel impressed that we shouldn't really have a realtor. So I said, okay, Susan, if the Holy Spirit told you we shouldn't have a realtor, then let's not have a realtor. So we went the next step. When we got our realtor, we actually typed up a paper. My parents think I'm crazy. But we typed this paper up and made God a realtor, witnessed by the Holy Spirit. I signed it. My five-year-old, my seven-year-old signed it. My wife signed it. And we're going to frame it. So now I kept thinking in my mind, how am I going to advertise? Well, I'm going to advertise in Farmington, Telluride. You know, we're asking close to just under a million dollars for our home, so it's a certain clientele for this home. And since we have God at a realtor, we might as well ask the upper dollar for it. So I fasted and prayed one day to ask God how I should advertise. And I felt impressed by the Holy Spirit that we should not advertise. And I said, God, you're crazy. This is insane. We live on County Road X. And that's at the end of the alphabet. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, and all the way down. There's no other roads besides County Road X. You have to go on three miles of dirt road to get to our home. Who is going to drive by our home? 
I have to advertise God. This is not coming from the Holy Spirit. But I kept feeling impressed. And I was arguing with God. And so that afternoon, I get a call. And I said, hello, it's Michael. I said, yes, how much are you selling your place for? And there was a long pause. And I said, I told them the amount, and they said, well, that, that's not too much. I said, don't hang up. How did you know we were selling our place? We haven't advertised. He said, yes, you have. I said, no, we haven't. He said, your for sale sign's up. I said, we didn't put a for sale sign up. Come to find out, 20 miles down the road to Highway 184, someone that day had put a for sale sign for 30 acres, and they had accidentally written our number on it. <laughs> Praise God is right. Doesn't he work in miraculous ways? I got another phone call that day, the same thing, before he changed the sign. I went to bed that night and said, okay, God, you win. You can sell this home any way you want. So we were getting ready to go to Union College. A good friend, Mark Carlson, uh, oncologist there in Lincoln, some of you may know him, uh, let us use their summer home on the lake because they weren't staying in it that winter. And just as we were getting ready to leave, the program had already started up at Union College, and I still didn't have a job in Lincoln. Credentials were still going through, even though I had a state license. Um, Bills were due. And I was just sure, 100% sure, that God was going to sell our home within three months. It's amazing how God works. He didn't sell it for a year later. But I was sure he was going to sell it. So here I am. Our bills are starting to come in. And um, I don't know how we're paying. We have $9,000 of bills this month. I have no income. I quit my job. They already hired someone full-time for me at our ER. And here we are going out to Lincoln to run the program at Union College. Susan says, Michael, come here for a second. She's working on the bills. And when Susan says that, boy, I hate going in. I grab the doorpost not to go into where she was in the office. Because when Susan says, come here when she's working on the bills, we've made an error to the negative. Like the year before that, she said, come in, we had minus $2,000 we owed. <laughs> and it's never been to the positive. Um, and so I go in, dreadfully go into the office. And she says, Michael, we have $6,000 in our account. I don't know where it came from. And I said, well, we'll call the bank. And so the next day she called the bank and $6,000 in the account. Still to this day, we don't know where the $6,000 came from. The next month, tax return, we always file late. Another 6000 came in. I never get $6,000 tax returns. So finally we're at Union College. And again, our bills are due. And this is in November and we leave for Venezuela in January. And we're there four months setting the program up for uh, the degree that we started there. And I have to sell this home. I mean, I have to pay our, our house payments are $3,000 a month. And so I was getting discouraged. The bills started coming in. Then the second notice of stomach started coming in. And God, why haven't you sold our home? So I'm driving back from Union College to the lake home, and I get a call from Davey, a good friend of mine. And he goes, Michael, how's it going? It's going just fine, Davey. No, Michael, how's it going? It's going fine. Michael, how's it going? You know how friends can be. They can be a real pest. <laughs> and thank heavens we have friends. And I said, okay, Davey, it's not going so well. The bills are due, and uh, we don't have the money to pay them. He says, would well, you have a realtor? And I says, yes, Davey, we have a realtor. He says, no, Michael, do you have a realtor? I said, yes, Davey, we have a realtor. You know the story. I told you we made God as a realtor. 
He says, do you have a realtor? Okay, Davey, we don't have a physical realtor. Our realtor is in heaven. He said, how do you know that the Holy Spirit spoke to you and told you to make him the realtor? I said, Davey, I don't. It was just a feeling. It was the intuition, whatever you want to call it. And he said, well, the Holy Spirit just spoke to me and had me call you, and he said for you to get a realtor. (laughs) A long pause. (laughs) I didn't know what to say. I said, okay, Davey. (laughs) He said, no, I, I felt impressed to call you. How do you know the Holy Spirit didn't tell me to call you to get a realtor? I said, I don't know, Davey. I tell you what I'll do. I'll fast and pray on it. So I went home. For the next three days, I was on my knees. And boy, did I drop to my knees. I prayed to God. I said, Lord, you don't want us to go into bankruptcy. That's not your plan, but we made you the realtor. Help me, Father. Help me. And after three days... It was one of the hardest decisions I ever had to make. I said, if we go into bankruptcy, we go into bankruptcy. To sign a contract with God is a holy thing. And if you want us to go into bankruptcy, God, then we go into bankruptcy. I invited my friend Davy over. And Davy came over, and I'll never forget the words he said when I told him, that if we go into bankruptcy, we go into bankruptcy. He says, I can't believe what you guys are doing. He said, I'm almost an atheist. Davy, an atheist? He grew up in our schools. He goes to church every Sabbath. How can he say he's almost an atheist? How many people do we sit with in church who sit next to us who are almost atheists? They have never put God to the test. They have never gone out and said, Here I am, send me. Otherwise, we don't develop our faith. This is a huge road that I'm learning to travel. And this is a different roller coaster ride that's unbelievable. I'd like to tell you one more story. Where we're taking Union College students, we take them overseas for a whole semester. We teach them travel medicine, public health, uh, tropical medicine. And we're setting it up in Venezuela with David Gates' program down there, Adventist Medical Aviation. Well, David has a pilot down there, Bob Norton. Does anybody know Bob here, Bob Norton? No one person does. Well, Bob's one of our pilots, and we're also getting, we have another pilot down there now, Lynn Wallington, and two weeks ago we bought another aircraft. So we have two aircraft operating down there. And they have about 50 villages to take care of. But when we spent four months down there last year, Bob says, Michael, I want to tell you a story. He said, I got a call from a village I'd never flown into for a snake-bitten patient. And the deadly snakes around there are pit vipers, and one of them is a silk snake. My tongue is already getting dry. I can't say silk. He said, I didn't know how to get into that village. All the villages have ham radios that have runways. We've put them in there. The government's helped put them in. And so Bob said, well, I had to go find out where this was. And so he flew to where the taxi service was. And if you're wealthy, if you're an Indian in southern Venezuela and have made it with gold or diamonds, you can pay an air taxi. 
and they'll bring you out from the village to Santa Elena, where we're at, and then back to the village. It's very expensive, though. They don't do any humanitarian work. So Bob flew in to where all these 206 air taxis were. And he jumped out of his aircraft. He ran over there because he knew the patient was dying. He wanted to get in there that day. And he said, how do I get to this village? And they said, don't go. It's too dangerous. He said, well, this patient's dying. I've got to get into this village. And they said, don't go. It's too dangerous. He's just an Indian. Let him die. For there's a caste system down there. And the Indians are the bottom. And Bob was really discouraged. So he walked to his little 172 and he started to pre-flight the plane. And he started to crawl in. And one of the older pilots walked up to him and said, I'm one of the only two pilots that has ever flown into that village. and I will never fly again in there again. But if you're crazy enough, I'll draw you a map how to get in there. So he drew a map. He said, as you come into this village, it's horseshoe-shaped, ringed by mountains. There's mountains all the way around. And he said, when you start going over the trees, he said, you won't have a power, especially in that 172, and we can't even get over in a Cessna 206s. He said, you won't be able to turn to the right, you can't turn to the left, you won't have enough power to fly up and over. And Bob said, okay. And he said, when you get in there, the runway will come up really quick on you. And when you see that runway, you've got to get the plane down. It's an extremely short runway, and at the end of it, there's a cliff. So the runway takes a 45-degree turn to the left. Once you make that 45-degree turn, you have 200 feet to stop, because then it goes back down the hill, and you'll have too much speed, and you'll take your landing gear off and bend your prop. So Bob thanked him, started climbing to the plane, started to shut the door, and the gentleman put his hand in there and said, wait, one more thing. He said, I want to tell you one other thing. He said, it's after 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and you'll have a tailwind. It's impossible for anybody to go in there right now. So Bob thanked him, fired up the 172, and flew over to the village and flew way above it at 9,000 feet above the mountains. And he looked down, he saw that runway with a 45-degree turn in it, and he said, even if I had a headwind, it is impossible with my skills to land there. And those that know Bob Norton, I mean, he's an extremely good pilot. I've flown now 100 hours with him, and he's a very good pilot. So Bob got on the radio, and he'd radio down there to where they had a nurse in this village that was taking care of this patient that was bitten. And he said, I'm terribly sorry, I can't land, and will never land. So he started flying back. Here am I, send me. As Bob started going back to the town of Marok, where we have our main base, the Holy Spirit started working on him and said, go back, Bob. And Bob started arguing with God. He says, I can't go back, Lord. I'll die. How do you expect me to fly in there? I will die. And the closer he got to, to Marak, the little town, the stronger the impression came, go back, Bob, go back. And he kept arguing. He said, I will die. Finally, he was on base. He turned final, was coming into the runway. And the impression was stronger. And he said, okay, Lord, you win. I'll go back but I may die. So he started flying back to this village. And the whole time he's praying, God, please, Lord, please, fly this plane. I can't do it. I can't do it on my own. You've got to fly this plane. And the closer he got, he was diaphoretic. Sweat was just running over me. He said, I was just so sweaty. And I kept saying, God, you've got to fly this plane. 
He said, finally the mountain started coming up and I started flying into that box canyon. And eventually I was too far in. I did not have enough power to get over the mountains. I couldn't turn to the right. I couldn't turn to the left. And I couldn't power up over the end. The runway wasn't there. I kept flying and flying. The runway wasn't there. I'm coming closer to the end. He said, God, show me the runway. All of a sudden, the runway was right there below me. He said, Mike, I dumped all flaps on. I yanked the power off. I flared. I still wasn't landing. So then I dumped my flaps off and I sunk like a rock right on the runway. He said, I was coming too fast for the corner. I was going to go over the cliff. He said, Mike, I don't believe it though. I made that 45 degree turn. It was impossible for me to make that turn. He said, I made that turn and I just didn't pump my brakes. I slammed the brakes on. I slid for 200 feet. And I stopped right before it goes down. I was like, yes, Lord! I can't believe it! Jesus flew this plane in. So Bob started reasoning. Jesus, if you can fly this plane in, you can fly this plane out, not only with the patient, but the nurse too. So they gently put the patient in, which was very sick. He got the nurse in, and they had a long prayer. Then they fired up the engine. What the pilot, the older pilot failed to tell Bob is that the way you have to go out is that hill that he was supposed to stop for at the two, end of the 200 feet. He has to go down that hill with his brakes on, go to the bottom. Then he has to 35 to 40 degree bank. He has to go up to the top. And a little 172 is not going to make that. But he reasoned, Jesus flew me in. Jesus didn't get me to the top of that hill. So he gets to the bottom, throws full power in. Somehow that little 172 makes it from the top. He kicks a rudder in, spins the plane around, and starts flying out. And he said, Mike, we're doing good. We're picking up airspeed. Things are getting good, but we're getting towards the bottom of the hill. He said, I start dumping flaps. How many of you are mission pilots? Any mission pilots here? Flown in mission planes? One of the ways they get off the ground is they start dumping a lot of flaps. They actually will come in with full flaps in order to take off. And that will get him out of ground effect. And so Mikey said, I got out of ground effect. I bounced my tires up about six inches, and I was kind of skipping off the ground, trying to pick up airspeed. And then what they have to do, they have to go ahead and bleed those flaps off. And it depends what kind of plane you have. You have to bleed the flaps up in, in this plane to about 20 degrees. Otherwise, you can't get out of the first five feet. So he said, Michael's bleeding the flaps off. I got back down to 30 degrees flaps. And he said, I realized we were not going to clear the hill, that we were going to crash. So the only thing I could do was to grab that yoke, pull it all the way back. He said, I pitched the nose way up and I stalled the aircraft out, which means he didn't have any lift. So he fell out of the air. He said, we crashed on the other side. But amazing enough, we crashed on all three tires on the hill that came down. The landing gear did not fold and we bounced 30 feet in the air. He said, when we bounced 30 feet in the air, we went over the cliff. When we went over the cliff, he said, Mike, the only thing I can do is throw the yoke forward. He said, I didn't touch the flaps, but someone else put the flaps up. He said, we dove for the trees. And he said, when we got to the trees, I yanked the yoke back. He says, I think we hit the trees. I felt something. I felt us hitting the trees and bouncing off the trees. And then we flew out of there. What a God we serve. Isn't that amazing? He said, I flew back to where all those air taxis were. And all those pilots were waiting there to see if I would live or die, if I would really attempt to go in there. They all came out to the plane, not saying one word. They opened the door and they took that sick Indian patient out to the waiting ambulance, all those pilots. 
And as Bob was telling me the story, he started crying. And I was wondering, why is Bob crying? And God did a miracle. He flew in there and he flew out. But Bob said, two weeks later, that patient died. Why would God fly me all the way in there and fly that plane all the way out for that patient to die of complications of snake venom? And between the tears, he said, now I know. In the last month to two months, I know now. Because everywhere I go, they said, you're the one that risked your lives for the Indian. Now, Adventist Medical Aviation is known for those that risk the lives for the Indians. Are you risking your life, your practice, your reputation for Jesus Christ? Clinkity, clinkity, clink.